This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Should you punch a Nazi, right? So (laughs) if the goal is to end Nazism, right? The goal is to end Nazism. And you have someone at your dinner party or in your workplace or on your public transport who's um, espousing um, fucked views, um, do you go and punch them? And I think it's a really interesting philosophical question because um, who is the punch for? And I think there's sort of a selfish element to the people who would punch because it would be a really satisfying thing to do. And I think there's this real philosophical quandary. If your goal is to end fascism, right, then is punching a Nazi going to take you a step closer to that goal? And I think all, like the answer is almost the opposite because I think it's then more likely to radicalise the punchee and to make them more enthusiastic and feel more righteous and more oppressed in their role to say, look at this brave position I'm taking, people are oppressing me. So I'm sort of coming to the position where I say I want to create a society that is hostile to Nazism in a general way, but I think... It's wrong to... uh, Sorry, I think it is not a step on the path to ending fascism if we go and punch Nazis. Shag, what do you reckon? Well, first of all, you've now created a clickbait heading for this episode that says, Peach says, don't hurt Nazis. (laughs) 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 So, So, no me gusta, basically, on my part. Also... Very recently in Brazil, their version of Joe Rogan, I can't remember his name, on a podcast said, Brazil needs a Nazi party because they have far left parties and it's only fair that there'd be a Nazi party. He was since hugely deplatformed and tried to say, oh, I was just drunk. But (laughs) the fact that people feel like it's okay to say things like that probably means we're not aggressive enough. Peach, like, it's an interesting philosophical question. Yeah, I'm so firmly sorry, just, in the yes. Just, I'm in the yes. Just to be yes. clear, you are down to end Nazism. <laughs> like, you're, you're comfortable. <laughs> I am down for taking personal responsibility in affecting the people around you. Mm. And yes, absolutely having a long-term think about the effects it's going to have on the broader context of everything, but also accepting that I can only shape the things around me not everything else. Now, 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 Peach, I'm going to jump in here because this is really important for us to say. We are very much, as a podcast, a work of outsider art. We've said this mm. before. Neither of us are psychologists so or psychiatrists. We're especially not psychiatrists, yeah, I think. because they're the ones with the actual medical degree, right? And I'm they not saying can, that psychologists are worse or anything, but psychiatrists are the... They can prescribe, prescribe meds, yeah. I think. I think that's the distinction. And, you know, so the fact that we're running an exposure therapy podcast without mm. any, not, not even training, without any consultation... <laughs> I think I've, I'm not sure I've Googled exposure <laughs> therapy on reflection. I'm like, oh, it's pretty much just having little doses <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> so, so number one, number one. But number two, neither of us 
just know anything about film. Mm. So over the past few episodes, we've been speaking to people who actually understand not only the horror genre, but film as a business itself. You know, last week, obviously, we made heaps of jokes about why Malignant costs $40 million. I wouldn't even begin to know how funding for a film is broken down or any of those logistical Mm. questions. So it's such a pleasure to welcome back someone who understands films, makes films, is option... I don't even know what optioning a film means, but is optioning films. Miga Riakos, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me again, guys. First of all, we have to start with this because yes, you've got some news. And again, I don't 100% understand what it means, but I know it's good. Can you explain what's happened in your world? Yeah, well, you know, the last couple of years, not a whole lot of external stuff, as you can imagine, during a pandemic. But yeah, no, I've uh, optioned a book that I loved when I was a teenager called uh, People Might Hear You by Robin Klein, who was really big author back in the 80s and 90s, so showing my age here. But um, yeah, it was a book that I had thought about a lot over the years and kind of really loved it. And a couple of years ago, someone said to me, if there's any book that you'd want to make into a movie, what would it be? And I thought of that. And so I reread it and loved it. Megs, can, like, can I ask how you drew the strands together? So part of it is, you know, a, a work of art you've loved. And so you're just someone who's appreciated it. Part of it is you're a creator and so you're reflecting on, yeah, all right, how would I turn my own eye to this? And part of that is, is you're a very successful business person in this industry. Um, how do you marry up that sort of fandom meets creator meets business person? Like, how, do you, how do you strike that balance? I think it's really hard because nobody knows what's going to be a hit until it's a hit. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's a it's a massive crapshoot, I think, the film industry. So um, I, I do think, though, that first and foremost, like I'm a creative, I'm an artist, so you have to, um, you know, take on projects that speak to you because you're going to be living with them for years, sometimes decades, you know? How do you d- decide on something that you're like, you know what, I'm going to like this in five years' time. I'm going to like this in ten years' time. It's a good question because I think um, you constantly grow and change. I mean, like, you know, the taste that you have in your early 20s, some of them stay the same, but then there's, you know, you go through different parts of your life and different life experiences and then different things speak to you. Um, sometimes it's the same subject matter that speaks to you in a different way, and I think that this book is what one of those instances because I think I probably was 13 or 14 when I read it, and what I really loved about the book was, you know, it was about, you know, this young girl who was put in this really difficult situation and trusts the adults around her and authority and slow Slowly she starts to realise they don't know what the hell they're talking about, that she has to take her own responsibility and kind of, you know, um, have her own voice. And so as a young kid, you kind of really resonate that because you're like, yeah, parents, <laughs> you know, teachers, they don't know anything. And now as an adult, I think um, you are still, I still feel that. I think also as a woman, you know, having a, a voice in an industry that's very male-dominated, coming up from another angle, yeah. I think that's a really interesting point on, on developing tastes because... Um, the first movie you ever excitedly spoke to me about, and we've known each other for about 23 years, was you were like, Peach, have you, firstly, have you ever drowned in a thunderstorm that you might be able to hear in the background? But you were like, have you seen this little movie called Fight Club? And <laughs> Migs, I expect um, that's not an opinion you're especially excited about sharing around these days. But how do you balance, again, your, your passion for the text mixed with the commitments you'll have to make as a creator. Mm. Like, so, you know, doing producer work, directorial work, it's not all, 
I don't know, story, storyboards and staring off into the middle distance. Yeah. There's sort of heavy lifting to be done. The, absolutely. I think the thing is, is it, although I say you have to come at it from a creative perspective, you are in the business of film, which is incredibly expensive and incredibly resource heavy. So, you know, I often say to people, if you don't want to collaborate with people, if you don't want to care about your audience at all, then maybe you should go paint or go do <laughs> photography or go do something that you can do on your own that doesn't cost a lot of money or doesn't cost, because it's not just money, money it's, it's a huge amount of energy. And, you know, like even a small independent film, you know, can have 30 people on a film set and then probably another 30 people involved in post. So a little film, a little feature film, might still have 70 plus people involved. I wanted to ask a question about film festivals because you've had a film in a film festival. How do you submit a film to a film festival and how do you, how do you, <laughs> number one, how do you submit one? But number two, how do you make sure that it gets yeah. accepted? Oh, it's so hard because, yeah, um, the filmmaker for the film we're going to talk about today did have a, a, a bit of trouble, I think. And like Once she found her niche, she just killed mm. it. Um, but, yeah, film festivals, it's, it's um, I'm trying to see the best way I can describe this because it's a massive, it's actually a massive topic. I, I teach um, indie filmmakers this very subject. And the idea is when you enter film festivals, it's almost like your film has a virginity and you can only give it up once. Once you give up that film's virginity, it totally devalues the pro- like the value of that screen. Oh, my God. And so, yes, yeah, so you've got the top-tier film festivals like Sundance and Toronto and Venice and, you know, Cannes, those festivals. And so the idea is you have to submit to those and you can submit, you know, there's an online fa- platform called Film Freeway and, you know, you pay an entry fee and you could literally spend thousands of dollars entering your film into festivals. So this is the problem when you kind of get into this whole idea of like the system versus those on the outsiders. If you're in the system, you probably already have a distributor on board. Those distributors probably already have contacts at Khan or they already have contacts at Sundance. So the programmers, are, they're already in the programmers year saying, hey, you know, we've got this film and it's starring this great name and, and so they barely even have to do those entries in the same way. And and um, I, I look, I'm going to get the statistics wrong, but for Sundance, it's such a small percentage of self-submitted films will ever get accepted because the majority of them are curated yeah. outside. So curated through like a system of who knows what. I'm not saying that those films aren't great because you know they've been able to get us being able to get to a certain level, but it's also around gatekeeping, you know. So what you generally have to do is for the first year of your film, if you think that there's a chance it might get into one of those films, and in some ways it's like you have to um, buy your lottery ticket, do you know what I mean, to those festivals, um, and you've got to wait like a year. So you kind of put it in, you decide which one's the most relevant, so you go, okay, mine's more of an American-style film, I'm going to try for Sundance versus a more art house film, so I'm going to try for Khan. So you go, okay, I'm going to wait till the Sundance uh time comes around I'll submit it to Sundance and I'll have to wait two or three months to find out if I'm going to get rejected and in the meantime I can't screen it anywhere and then when that gets no then you submit it to the next one and when Toronto rejects it then you um do the next one and so you spend a year getting rejections and then you go to the next year oh my god so so this this is what happened with today's film so and and the reason I'm explaining this fact because you just mentioned that and I think it's so interesting today's film is by a Mexican female director Issa Lopez who was actually super established before this film this was not her first film she'd written 11 Mm. films four of which she directed herself so she was in no way like a newcomer she had you know definitely support behind her but this film just kept getting rejected by all of the like all the ones you mentioned I think it did get rejected by like Sundance by Khan by all of these places and then there was there was a suggestion that this film 
although it's it's not quite horror, but it's not not horror, to submit it to the genre film festivals. It then got accepted by Fantastic Fest and became a film that both Stephen King and Guillermo del Toro called one of their favorites of the year, which is a pretty huge emotional roller coaster. Does that mean she went over months, potentially even years of just yes. rejection before finally getting incredible acceptance? Yes, I did read an interview um, where she was saying she was just devastated. It had been over a year of submissions and rejections. And up until then, she had been doing like romantic comedies and stuff like that and quite successful. And, you know, but that wasn't her true voice. She was always interested in genre. But, you know, I, you know, I guess there's two things here. It's this idea that in mainstream cinema, and it is changing now, there's with a lot of elevated genre, but up until probably, you know, five years ago, um, genre was a bit of a dirty word and people thought oh, genre is b-grade and so for her it was like that's a career killer if you do a horror film so you should do this other stuff and we can slot you in here and being a woman you know when she was first starting out you know she was writing telenovas and stuff in mexico so that was her in even though her kind of her true voice was probably more in the genre and um she was um saying how that you know she decided she wanted to do something that was really close to her heart and this was the product and to have that then take so long to find it place would have been so challenging because it's like she's using her that voice that she really really wants to use for the first time in a long time so yeah would she punch a nazi as well (laughs) (laughs) i reckon she'd make a film about it and and that would be her her metaphorical punch i don't know by by some of the things she pulls in this film which is not necessarily a horror film, but Peach, there is no way you could watch it for one particular reason. Yes. Uh, Today on the pod, we are doing a 2017 Mexican crime, fantasy, magical realism horror film. I don't think we've ever had that description for a film before. By director and writer Issa Lopez called Tigers Are Not Afraid. Los tigres no tienen miedo. Los deseos, como los cuentos. Tienen pacto con el diablo. Um, is it the best film we've ever done? I'm sort of moved just by watching the preview. I'm, I feel changed and like I've learned something. That was like a two minute long Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Hang on, that's his name, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. The Hundred Years of Solitude. Magical realism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very much magical realism. It's it's a really fucking weird film. It's it's very much an indie film. You can tell the budget wasn't sky high. Megan, I'm so keen. Before we dive into this film, you watched it this week. What are your first impressions of it? Oh, I was really moved by it. Like, it's really interesting. A lot of, um, when I watch horror films, the ones that I really love, and, you know, we talk about this being a mashup. So is it a horror film? Is it not a horror film? And I think um, uh, that 
that horror is a much broader church than most people realize and i think that this is definitely horror that it's it's got that magical realism in it and um i love i love 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 magical realism and a massive fan of guillermo del toro's pan's labyrinth and this has got so much resonance i think with that film it is a very different film and the budget is like probably one hundredth of pan's labyrinth but yeah i really enjoyed it as much as you can enjoy a film like this. Well, yeah, exactly. And we will get to a point where it's like, oh, okay. And, and Peach, I, I'm just foreshadowing because I just want you to be prepared, okay? It looked very PG to me. I was like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It could be a bit of, there's a bit of blood, but, you know. And it is mostly. And, I mean, here's the thing that I think is really interesting about this film is it's clearly her first foray into genre filmmaking because the moments that are incredibly, like, seamless and effortless are the moments with these kids. The performances and the emotions of these kids, the story of these kids that you're going to discover as we talk about this film are, are just beautiful. But it does have this horror story as part of it, almost like this horror subplot. There are these horror elements. And I reckon they're probably the least successful of the film. While I was watching it with Adele, she made this call, and I hope this makes sense. Uh, as soon as I heard it, I was like, this is 100% right. She was like, it's about as scary as a museum exhibition. So you know when you walk into something and it's like, the tigers in ancient whatever would have been like this. Raw. And that's the level of scariness of this film. I can cope with that. But. Whoa. But. <laughs> okay. But, as we know... <laughs> True horror, true disturbing cinema uh, isn't about evil entities being evil. It's about humanity being evil. And this film is about a bunch of kids set in a deserted town in cartel-held Mexico. So in this film, the real villains are not the supernatural villains, they're people. And that is also quite successful in this film. And in that case, yes, this film is very PG until Issa decides to pull zero punches and then it is not a PG film at all. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, Megan. What did you feel like at that particular scene, maybe two-thirds in? Yeah, oh, I... um... Yeah, it was really sad. And actually, it's interesting because I heard you guys talking about Snowtown a couple of episodes ago. And mm-hmm. the thing about Snowtown is it's very, very violent. But the thing about Snowtown was the loss of innocence and the, um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't know if I should give it away, but the, <laughs> the, the idea, it's not so much the violence that is the terrible thing. It's it's the, the loss of innocence or the, in, in many different ways. Um, I guess, iterations of what that means to lose your innocence. Uh, I think that it was just really, it reminded me also of um, a movie called City of God, which came out um, in the early 2000s. Same idea, you know, it was in that was set in favelas in Rio. Mm. You had these little kids, you know, three-year-olds smoking cigarettes, holding guns, shooting things up. And so it's like these kids who are doing these incredibly adult gestures and adult things and having to battle it out as orphans on the street but then at the same time, in the next moment, you'll see them, you know, cuddling their little soft toy tiger, you know? So this is 2017's Tigers Are Not Afraid. It starts with some stats that are really full on. And and, and again, I don't know if you, like, I, I'm even, like, scared to, like, the reputation of the cartels are insane. And I'm even weird, like, like, can we talk about, I don't know, but it's like, it starts with these stats about how much, you know, cartel warfare in the border towns between Mexico and the US have led to an insane amount of men and women 
dying as you know basically collateral damage or victims of the violence it also says that there are no statistics for what's happened to the children and that's not just children murdered but children being estranged children being effectively left parentless children being lost to these wars and also the fact that a lot of these towns that you know this violence has swept through are now effectively just ghost towns. Again, I don't, I don't know. Like th- these, are, these are the stats at the start of the film. I don't know how big this is. I don't know how much of Mexico this covers. But this is, this is the setting, and this is very much how they want you to enter this film. Going, this is very much a real thing. So we open on Estrella, who is a young girl in a Mexican city. Uh, it's an unnamed Mexican city that's devastated by cartel violence. She's in class one day. They're working on a fairy tale writing assignment. We hear in her head that she's writing a fairy tale about a prince wanting to become a tiger because tigers have sharp teeth and they're super tough and they're just not afraid, right? And it is one of those things where if, if you do enjoy hearing the name of a film, they say tigers are not afraid about like five <laughs> times in this film. So like there's never a point where you're like, I have no idea why they call this. Called this. It's, it's very clear. It's much the same with Fight Club. <laughs> they do say Fight Club heaps in Fight Club. Yeah, yeah, they, they love saying it. They bloody love it. So, Estella's classroom is disrupted by gunfire outside the school, and it's super depressing where it's like that loss of innocence where everyone knows immediately to drop to the ground. Amid the panic, Estella's teacher hands her three pieces of chalk that she says will grant her three wishes. That day, she leaves the school where she sees a dead body under, like, cordoned off by police tape under a blanket. And there's a there's blood coming from the head that slowly starts to follow her. After that incident, classes are indefinitely suspended. So anyway, we then cut to a street orphan, Shine, who steals a gun and an iPhone from Kako, a henchman of crime boss Chino. So you've got to remember these names, okay? So there's Kako and Chino. Now, Chino is actually politician Savando Esparza, who clearly has some sort of weight in the town because you see his posters everywhere. I actually quite liked how much they set up Esparza slash Chino as like a figure in this film without ever really showing him due to these posters. I thought that was really clever. But, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so. So he steals uh, the gun and the iPhone from this crime boss who's really drunk and taking a whiz next to a wall on the street somewhere. Now, Shine points the gun at Kakao, who's drunkenly oblivious to it, but he's unable to shoot and he just runs away. Now, when Estrella... Meanwhile, we're with Estrella. Remember, she's got this line of blood that's following her from this dead body. It's, it's very... Like, when, when we talk about magical realism, it's things like this in this film. There's elements of this where it's like, is that happening? Is that not? Is that just, like, an element of the story? Or is there magic... You know, it's never really explained. Two-thirds of the way through, we find out, though, I expect. <laughs> well, 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 we'll see, right? Okay. So it leads to her house where she discovers that her mother is missing and is probably a victim of rampant drug cartel-related violence from Chino's human trafficking ring, the Huascas. So I know that's a lot of detail, but pretty soon we find out that 
Chino is this local politician, but everybody kind of knows that he's also the head of this gang called the Huascas who run a human trafficking ring. And essentially everybody's scared of them to the point where, you know, they're, they're, they do a really good job of not over-explaining with exposition because at one point we see a family next door from Estrella leave while she's waiting for her mum to come home. And we know that people are leaving the town, but it's not just, it's not explicitly said. Yeah, it's a really quiet kind of, um, a kind, it's like a mood, the mood of you know, just seeing your next door neighbours pack up and leave because of the violence. Um, but one of the images I just wanted to mention that I thought was really um, uh, powerful, because I think what happens in this film is is that there's these elements of genre that I what I would have loved if they were taken further and kind of developed a little bit more. So and I think that's what you refer to, you know, this being the first genre film that she's made that perhaps the next one we see might explore this stuff more. But that image of the um, that blood trail that comes into the room and she's sitting there and she's looking for a mum and her mum's nowhere and this blood trail kind of goes up a photo of her and her mum straight down the middle and I was like, that's it, the mum's dead because that trail of blood has separated the two of them and then the blood ends on um, her mum's dress which is just hanging up and it spreads across her chest as if she as if the the dress had been shot and blood was trickling through so like that image i think that sets the tone for what the next 70 minutes is going to be yeah and and oh and keep in mind this is an 80 minute film like yes yes (laughs) uh, the best length for a film but yeah it's a really good point right and like no one ever goes I mean, there are elements later on where she's like, yeah, my my mom's missing, but it's not like, it's not overly explained. You just, you just get this feeling of absence when she goes home. And, you know, there's a phone call where she tries to call her mom's phone. Basically what's happening is, what you're starting to see, this town is slowly becoming a ghost town and it's a ghost town that these parentless children are forced to wander on their own. And that becomes the main thrust of the film, which is kind of magical where you watch these kids who still have the innocence of kids also be forced to deal with very adult things. And I think to your point before, Megan, that's the most heartbreaking Mm. element of this film by far. There's a quote that keeps coming back in the film where Estrella tells Shine about her wishes and Shine goes, there are no wishes, there's no nothing. As in, like, magic doesn't exist. There's no hope. That all, yeah. all there is in the world is us and yeah. what we do. Yeah. Nothing yeah. else. <laughs> it's just really full on. Anyway, so, okay, all right. So, growing lonely and desperate for food, Estrella wishes for her mother to return. Estrella begins experiencing haunting visions. Now, remember, she's got wishes. So, she's made a wish and she wanted mm. her mother to return. Estrella begins experiencing haunting visions of her mother as a ghost, imploring Estrella to bring him to us. Now, this is where it starts being, you know, the images of her mother of a ghost are creepy. Like, she's wrapped in plastic. She basically has the jerky movement of Gabriel from Malignant. So, <laughs> so, it's sort of like that. And, and it's always like hands grasping, a, a few jump scares, but at the same time, it's not super scary. And it's a, it's a shame because, I mean, you were very diplomatic about this. I would have loved these moments to be scary and they're just not. But you know what that is? It's, it's, um, I was interesting because the sound design and music is not your traditional genre. They've gone with a very drama style mm. sound design and music. And, and I thought it's an interesting choice. I probably would have liked, I, I appreciated the choice, but I thought that they could have, you could have done something that still brought in some of those tropes a little bit more without going full, full horror. Do you know what I mean? 
So soon after, Estrella catches Shine looting her house. So she follows Shine back to his hideout and meets fellow orphans Pop, Tuxie, and Moro. Moro being this really young kid who can't quite speak because at some point they explain that he saw something really bad before his parents left and now he just doesn't say a word. But he has this toy tiger. Um, and before they meet, so this isn't in the Wikipedia, but mm. Moro, they're all sitting around at night in their sort of favela-esque accommodation in this empty city where they live and Moro points at the tiger and so Shine tells this story again about this local crime boss who had all of these wild animals in his home as like you know part of his extravagant living and one day a rival camp comes in and kills him and kills most of the animals but the tiger escapes and now the tiger wanders the neighborhood angry and afraid and lost and basically look and like feeding on cats and dogs and young kids and so so comforting for a child in distress <laughs> <laughs> there's a wild tiger around here awesome now Shine refuses to feed or welcome Estrella into his gang, but Estrella sort of stays with the boy anyway, and we find Moro, like, reaching out to her with, like, small elements of it. Like, he gives her a little animal cracker they found and, you know, helps her with an extra blanket and things because it's quite cold at night. So, anyway, so, meanwhile, Kako comes looking for a stolen gun and phone, knowing that it was these street kids that they know about, and, you know, drives into this neighbourhood... The children escape, except for Morrow, who's kidnapped. Shine gives Estrella the stolen gun and tells her that she's got to go kill Kako. And if she does, he'll let her remain in the gang. They know where he lives, so they go to this house. And here's Estrella, like this 10-year-old girl, in the sort of clothes that 10-year-olds wear, very, like, very much just a kid with this massive cartel gun that's like emblazoned with like, you know, cool things on the side. Like this giant gun. And she is basically forced to go into this house and kill this mob gangster. So Estrella sneaks into the apartment and she finds Kako on a lounge chair watching TV. While aiming the weapon, she makes another wish that she didn't have to kill Kako. She then sees that Kako is already dead. Estrella frees Moro... Who and, and, oh, God, this is awful. So she finds not only Moro but some other kids and they're just locked in cages oh in, God. like... And to be honest, it's it's one of those elements where it's, like, a lot of this film is very fairy tale like mm. You know, like, it's... Yes, they're a human trafficking gang, but they're also the evil, you know, trolls who are trapping kids in cages and stuff. And even the way that the kids, like, wander the streets and wander these empty streets, there's there's an element of... It being like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or, or mm. some sort of... Or Hansel and Gretel, you know, with the witch keeping the kids in the... Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it feels like, it, you know, whether that's because it's from the kids' perspective or not, it's it, it makes a lot of the film a lot easier to deal with yeah. and not feel as heavy as it does. So... I'm gripped. Uh, this is sick. So... Estrella frees Moro and tells Shine that she killed Kako. So she's like, well, she doesn't necessarily, like, she basically lets them all think that she killed Kako. And she's allowed to join the gang now. Later that night, she has another vision of her mother who warns her that the man who really killed Kako will be looking for Estrella and Estrella must bring the man to her. 
So Shine, Estrella, Pop, and Tuxie and Morrow bring the other rescued boys back to their rival gang leader, Brian. So they rescued two other boys who are brothers of this other gang leader, Brian. So they go to Brian, and Brian hears about what happened and taunts Shine for having Estrella kill Kako when Shine should have been the one to do it and is basically like, you guys are dead. Like, you killed Kako. Like, there's, there's nothing that's going to stop all of you being killed now. Estrella later finds Shine crying over the fact that he couldn't kill Kako. Shine confesses that he keeps... Oh, my God, this is really full on, right? So remember how they stole this phone? So, and, and a couple of times they're like, why haven't you sold this phone yet? The reason why he keeps Kako's phone is he's managed to unlock the phone and in the phone... This, this was one of the moments where I was like, oh, fuck, like, this kind of broke me. There are all these photos of his victims of, like, where you can tell he's taken a photo, like, the moment before they're about to die or a moment when he's being like, victim number one, I'm going to sell you, whatever. And there's a photo of his mum in there and it's the only photo he has. And so he's kept this phone, even though it's a photo of his mum's killers. For, like, like, I know that's a very confusing thing to say, yeah. but it's like... Yeah, that, that moment kind of almost broke me. It was one of the moments where I was like, oh, yeah, this this movie isn't fucking around. Did you feel the same way, me? Oh, my God, yeah, the, the, the footage and the stuff on that phone and it's like these, like, even adults viewing that would have been and these little kids are looking at it and that's the, you know, only thing that they've got. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> now, meanwhile, having mm. heard about Estrella from Brian. Kako's so obviously Brain's now gone and told mm. the family what's happened and how Kako died. So Kako's brother Tio calls the phone they have to threaten nice. the children. So the kids realize they're not safe. So they go into the city and they find this mansion. And there's a really sweet moment where when they're looking for a place, one of them's like, we need to find a place that has a zoo and and a football stadium and a cinema and a theater. And Shine's like, you idiots, there aren't any houses like that. But they break into this mansion where they find, and look, it's a little bit telenovela. It's a little bit melodramatic, but... For example, there's like there's kind of like almost like a makeshift pond where this uh, like an aquarium is broken and all the koi fish have fallen into this indent in the ground where they're all sort of just floating around freely on one of the floors. They open one of the other rooms up and turn it into like a soccer stadium. So they do actually create their own magical place where they can live. And it's and it's a really sweet moment. And there's all these sweet moments in the film. That sounds expensive to me. You know, you gotta go in there and bang up a house. I don't know. But while this is happening, Estrella notices one of the lines of blood slowly Ooh. goes up the stairs towards some of the other boys. And that's when it's like, ah oh, fuck, okay, so so we're not actually safe. So after the kids decorate soccer balls, Shine tells Estrella about his mother. Shine asks Estrella if she might use her last wish. Uh, to remove the burn scars on his face. So he has these scars on his face and he's like, you've got wishes. Maybe one of your wishes could be to remove this burn scar. But Estrella refuses. Fuck, that's such an easy question, isn't it? It's like, it's a wish, champ. Like, I'm not wasting a fucking... <laughs> like, I'm sorry about the scar. Anyway, so she refuses, claiming something bad happens every time she makes a wish. Like, you know, when she wished for her mum back, but all of a sudden she gets this haunted mum chasing mom. her. Yeah. Anyway, or like, you know, she Don't wanted, Ka- she didn't yeah. want to kill Kako, but now they're being hunted by the men. So then there is my favorite scene in this whole film. And I want to stop here because it's. Is this the one? 
No, no, no. But this okay. is a good one, one, not a bad one. This is a good okay. one. Okay, let's okay. let's talk about this, Megan, because mm-hmm. this is like the loveliest thing. Yeah. There's a theatre in this house, and the boys are hosting their own talent quest where one is in the audience being like okay next Moro the one who can't speak is introducing the act with a sign because he won't speak and then one of the kids comes on and does a rap he's like my name's I think his name's like rap rap or something (laughs) and he's like I'm gonna rap and he does a little rap and like they're just hosting their own little talent show because they're just kids because they're kids the other really lovely moment that I um was you know the the, they're all just sitting around you know hanging out talking and stuff and um uh Moro the little kid who can't speak he's you know gone riding around and, and dropped his little toy tiger and the toy tiger got a bit damaged and so he's sitting in Estrella's lap and she's um, mending it for him and she's like a mum and she cuddles him and he kind of nuzzles into her and then you have a look over and you see um shine he, he's watching you know almost jealous that he that he doesn't have that mother figure and I was just like oh my god these kids they just want they just want to be like in somebody's arms you know so Shine's probably one of my favourite rappers from the Bad Boy stable that came through as well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, 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 okay. So while this is happening, Tio captures Shine and Estrella sees this happening and so she runs to hide, but when she hides, she has another haunting vision, not just of her mother, but all of these murder victims covered in plastic being like, you must bring him to us. And again, like, oh, it's kind of scary. Like, I was like, I was loving this film so much that, you know, when you're really loving a film and say it's, oh. say it's a film that's not necessarily funny but lovable and you're trying to be like, oh, I guess that's funny. In the same way, I kept being like, I guess this is scary, but it's just not. Well, like, this this winds back to, like, to Megan's point about the... Um, decision not to lean more heavily into horror tropes. Mm. Like, I think that's right. Like, isn't there the line, you know, if you're scared in the cinema, don't close your eyes, close your ears. And, mm. uh, like, if you're going to get freaked out, it'll, like, you know, if I'm going to get freaked out, I, I probably only really need to l- listen to these trailers rather than watch them. I think it's an interesting decision, you, you know, to, to show the horrific thing but to not otherwise telegraph it? I, I think the interesting thing as well is is um, that I don't think she realised that she was making a horror film because she didn't try to put the film into festivals, to genre festivals, because yeah. she didn't really, like, I think she thought she, like, when she talks about it, she talks about making a social drama that has magical realism elements, even though the darkness of magical realism is actually horror. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, I think she didn't quite know what she was and, making. And, I mean, it's a, it, I think it's a really good point to say, mm. like, is Pan's Labyrinth horror? Like, it's generally classified as a horror film, mm. but can you really... Put Pan's Labyrinth and Hereditary next to each other, or Pan's Labyrinth and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre next to each I other, and say, "I do think so." Yeah. Look, I think when I first watched it, I thought it was magical realism, and then as I understood more about the horror genre, I was like, "No, oh, that's definitely horror." There's some horrific things that happen in that. You know. Uh, that's a really interesting point because uh, one of the comments we've discussed before about like what is a horror film is that it's a work of art that's designed to elicit a certain response. And it strikes me that what you've just said, Meg, is 100% accurate, that this is a film with horrific things in it. But I I guess I wonder whether if the definition I just raised is the right one and maybe the wrong one, but I suppose it's not... It wouldn't fall within that definition by the sounds of things. It's it's not designed to 
or maybe it is designed to to, to horrify because it's to expose, mm. yeah, to shed shed light on the scenario. Yeah, okay, perhaps okay. I'll draw that point. So, so, okay, so like I said, so so shines mm. being captured by Teo. Estrella tries to escape and warn the other boys, but then she has another vision and she freaks out and she tries to escape the vision and that's when she's captured as well. So Teo and his friend have mm. captured both Estrella and Shine. And that's when we notice that Moro has the pistol. And so Moro fires a shot at both of them. I think injures Teo, maybe, or at least glances one of them, maybe one of them in the arm. And so, and I, like, I can't believe this happens, but Teo shoots Moro, our young silent boy who was cradled by Estrella, who carries this toy tiger around, shoots him. We then get that scene, but from Moro's perspective, where Moro looks down at his hand and there's blood on his hand, and he died. Like I just, uh, like, and, and, oh, and I God. think, and I think, I think it's real. Like it's tough to like, it's tough to say whether it's right or wrong to include something like this in a film. But I guess when you're trying to, I guess, make a point about the reality of living in essentially a war zone, which I guess cartel controlled. Uh, 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 parts of the country are it's it's definitely a choice to not pull a punch like that mm. well i think the thesis of the film for her um is to shine a light on what is happening in real life to these kids this is the kind of stuff that's happening in real life to these kids so that's why it's on the screen you know what i mean because no one talks about it she was saying how she was researching another film um around the cartel not about around the kids and one of the um experts she was saying to his well, no one ever speaks about the kids. And she was like, what do you mean the kids? This is what is the kids. And, yeah. and it's, it's really cool how it kind of almost lulls you into this false sense of security being like, it's a fairy tale, these mm. kids are protected, and it's like they're absolutely not. They're not safe. And, in fact, the one kid of all who you did not, it would be like if the Mandalorian killed Baby Yoda. Like it would be like <laughs> if they were like, by the way, Baby Yoda's died in the worst possible way. Deal with it, Star Wars fans. Like... I think it's like it's a really interesting point. One of the things I'm sure we all feel guilty about is that we don't read enough books, and I certainly feel very guilty about it. And I certainly don't read enough fiction, right? And there's this nice line that I've enjoyed since I heard it only you know, six or twelve months ago, when when the guild really started to set in. That's that's like something along the like you you get more truth from a novel or something like that. Like you learn you learn more about reality from a novel, and and I don't think that our filmmakers trying to, you know, say, here's a documentary, this is exactly what happens. But it's sort of almost more resonant for that fact in that it's mm. being framed up with the stats and then of like, well, now we're going to take a step into this world. Mm. They're empathy machines, you know, mm. novels and, yep. and art. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so, and well so, so anyway, so the kids escape with, oh, my God, with Moro and they, they basically keep him in this room with a blanket over him and they call him Morito because obviously in Spanish you can add an Ito to the end of things and it means little. It's just, like, it's so full on. And, uh, yeah, it's just, and it, it, the whole time you're like, that didn't happen. It's like, oh, no, it did happen and they're going to make his focus on it. Anyway, so after they escape with his body, they wonder why recovering the phone is so important to the Huascas. Uh, because at the end of the day, they, he's stolen a gun and the phone, and you'd think the gun would be way more important. But for some reason, they really want to get this phone back. 
So they closely examine the the contents of it. And as Megan sort of pointed out before, it's not just photos of victims. There's a recorded video in the phone of Chino killing a captive woman. And remember, Chino is this local uh, politician Politician, as well. So it's obviously something that Chino doesn't want out there. And keep in mind, we have not, except for this video and these posters, we have not seen Chino in this film at all. Like he is a presence that exists in the universe, but we have not seen this man. So Estrella has Shine call Chino, who threatens the children. Estrella bargains to turn over the phone if Chino makes the remaining Huascas disappear. Chino agrees and arranges a meeting. He also reveals that he was the one who actually killed Kako because Kako could not turn over the stolen phone. So all the pieces are starting to come together. And I think for a film that tries to do so much, it has these horror elements. It has, mm. it, it, it also has these elements of these illustrated graffiti that I won't, I haven't even gone into. You'll see it in the trailer of the graffiti on walls sort of coming to life and telling the stories as they happen. So it has all these elements, but the story itself is quite tight and I love how it comes together. So everything's now come down to this head of them making this meeting with Chino. So, as we said before, Chino agrees and arranges a meeting. He reveals that he was the one who actually killed Kako because Kako could not turn over the stolen phone. Mm. In the wake of that revelation that she did not kill Kako, Shine and the other two boys shun Estrella because they kind of blame her for Morrow being killed. Estrella starts having more visions of dead people, including of Morito, in which now he can speak and his tiger comes to life. So his tiger becomes this, like, silent character that walks around. It's really sad and really poignant and really rubs it in. Like, this film does not want you to forget that it killed a very cute boy in the most horrific (laughs) way possible. It's, It's almost, like, sadistic the way that it just wants to rub that in your face. Okay, so fearful of Chino... Pop and Tuxie, who are two of Shine's friends, steal the phone from Shine and they take it to a policeman uh, and show the policeman the video of Chino killing this woman. But as soon as the policemen see it and see it's Chino, they're like, fuck this, we're out of here. Turn on their lights and just scream away. Shine Dude. goes up and he's like, what the fuck did you expect? No one's going to help us. And it always comes down to the fact that it's like, there's no one helping us. We are effectively alone and this is our life. This is our reality and we just have to make the most of it. And it's really full on and it's tough and it's like uh, I, yeah like it's 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 amazing that the film is not more despairing than it is like it sounds bleak but it's actually the magical realism gives it this element of magic to it that wouldn't be there normally if this was just a straight like mafia film so shine takes the phone back and notices that the bracelet of the woman in the video who's being murdered by chino is the same as the bracelet worn by Estrella's mother in a photo that he'd found earlier. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Moro's ghost tells Estrella where to find the boys. So, oh, Morito, so Morito helps. So when they reconnect, Estrella insists that they've got to go to Chino or else he's going to kill them all. So they can I, be- like, can I, look, I'm so sorry to get sidetracked, but comparing it to a mafia film, I think is really interesting. Um, uh, Megan Ray's elevated genre before, and, and you guys have both talked about the sort of like Avengers Infinity War of trying to drag drag all these threads together. I don't... I, I wonder if it's like the opposite of a mafia film. Yeah, I feel like sorry. in those mafia films, you kind of... 
like you, you sort of fall in love with it and you're sort of half like, oh, would be pretty cool. Yeah. To do some... Wrong yeah, analogy, I think. It's more like the, the, the South American effects of mafia film. Yeah, interesting. Like your yeah, City yeah, of yeah. God, like yeah, any film, you know, s- yeah. you know, set in the favelas where it's like it's not about the actual the organisations in the same way that, you know, American mm. mafia films are obsessed with, but it's more mm. about the everyday people who live in these areas and are it's affected more like by it. The wire. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Actually, yes. Yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. Um, it's like The Wire meets Stranger Things meets a film where <laughs> children are killed ruthlessly. And Peter Pan mm. probably needs a mention as well because it's kind of like Wendy mm. and the Lost Boys, you know what it I mean? It is like mm. that. Oh, my oh, gosh. Nice. It's got a real Peter Pan vibe. Yeah. And in fact, it's got a total Peter Pan vibe. That's so true. Megs, you should think about working in a creative industry. I think, <laughs> I think it would really... <laughs> I think you really got the... <laughs> you really got what it takes. So they, they bury Marito by putting him in a box. And so then Estrella, Shine, Pop and Tuxie go to meet go to the meeting with Chino, Tio, and another henchman in an abandoned building where Shine turns over the phone. Now, when Shine claims not to know the password, Chino just crushes the phone with his foot. Chino then executes Tio and the other henchman, explaining to Estrella that he honoured his part of the agreement, and he's like, now piss off, I never want to see you guys again. As they're leaving, Estrella notices that this is the building from the video and she wants to find her mother. Shine reveals that he still has Kako's phone because he gave Chino a decoy, and then reveals that the woman in the video was her mother. So he advises Estrella that wishes aren't real, but then she's like, you know what? And she just draws a cross on his cheek with the chalk and is like, you can have my final wish. And it's a super sweet moment. Um, And then Chino suddenly appears because he's worked out the deception and he shoots Shine in the face and then Shine dies. And we have to see Shine with his cheek torn open. And again, it's like, it's one thing to have kids die in a film. It's another thing to have kids, the violence inflicted on kids shown mm. in a film. I thought that was a weird choice. Yeah, I I wondered as well. Like I thought, I understood why Morrow got killed. And I mean, uh, you know, it was confronting. But I Here's the new clickbait yeah. headline. Yeah. Me and Riyakos think it's more cool that child dies. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Are you okay with me? Now, Shine as well. Like, But I guess that's part of, I mean, the ending. We can talk about the ending and the choice to also kill Shine. Yeah. So Estrella flees while Chino chases her through the building. She gets into the the, uh, the, the the air vents and is trying to hide and Morrow's tiger doll appears and leads Estrella into a shaft where she falls into the room containing all of the dead bodies, including her mother's. Estrella tearfully connects with a vision of her mother while her mother's bloody body briefly reanimates and transfers her bracelet to Estrella. Now we then cut to Chino, who's following the sound of this phone because he keeps ringing the phone. He finds it in this room and he sees the phone. He's like, I've got you now. That's when Estrella closes the door on her because she used the phone as a lure. Chino's now trapped in the room with all the dead bodies and we hear the ghosts of his victims animate and then kill him. Estrella then encounters Shine's ghost who takes a lighter and says farewell to her, goes into the room, and then we basically, from outside the door, hear the whole room go up in flames and we know that Chino's dead and there's been some reckoning for everything that he's done. Now, on her way out of the building, she turns around and there she finds the tiger. 
It's just sitting there, the escaped tiger, and she's a little bit scared, but the tiger just sort of looks at her and then leaves. And then she opens the door and all of a sudden she's in this open, green, beautiful field. And that's the end of Tigers Are Not Afraid. I'm sure, again, this is Wikipedia. I might have missed some things. Um, Peach, what did you think? Loved it. Loved it. Kill, like killing, killing Marito is a heartbreaking moment. It's the love my way, like Frankie's oh, death yes, is love my way. Is. That I fucking I, like. I yeah, but never... Frankie wasn't shot. Yeah, like, <laughs> I get it. Well, it was fifteen years ago. You know, lots has moved. Like we've, we've moved on. Yeah, <laughs> I'm shocked by that. <laughs> <laughs> option the rights to love my way. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I look. I think it was fantastic. I think it was fabulous. I, I look. I really do not enjoy engagements with graffiti culture that are fairly lazy and seem to not understand what street art's about. So I sort of have that minor element of like, mm, like to me, there's something quite sacred about street art, and I think that's mainly because I don't understand it perfectly. That I really. Like, I find any clumsy engagement of, like, yeah, man, it just turns into magic of, like, yeah, yeah, fucking all right. Like, well done, well done. I also think the the street art cringe probably comes from a, a, an Australian cult, cultural cringe Ooh, where yeah, a lot of predominantly white, white middle class. Australian middle-class yeah. hip-hop culture that tried to engage with it in the 90s and noughties was kind of awkward and, in hindsight, like, a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of scriggity scrick scratch. <laughs> um, but, but like, I think it was our look. Not to get too sidetracked on graffiti, I actually think it was our strongest showing. Like, I, I think if we like, if we do very boring gatekeeper, what is hip hop of four elements? I think graffiti was probably Australia's strongest suit. Um, but from breakdancing, that other really, <laughs> really, really important element. I don't like. I'm all for like a free and open society where people can do stuff. I don't think Australians should be allowed to breakdance. I just, <laughs> I think, I think it's only fair. I, yeah, and I think if you do it, you lose your citizenship. I think that's it. Like. <laughs> Now, Megs, um, we thought we just might just throw you into a mentor role just as a bit of a consultant. Shag and I have got a little bit of a, of a side hustle uh, going on where we are ourselves aspiring filmmakers. Ooh. And, um, look, we've decided on a budget for a, for a, for a small film of $400,000. Do you know anyone with $400,000? <laughs> I guess it's probably... Oh. I've also got a question and oh, this is also revealing something to you Peach that I'll talk mm. about next episode when we oh, get into la. charcuterie all right I've I've recently had a realization that the, the budget film hasn't gone up has it that, the, be... well it might have to that <laughs> okay. the film we're slowly writing as part of Spooko mm. charcuterie should actually be part of a wider oh, universe God. almost like a horror marvel as you know, as aspiring filmmakers who have no experience, no funding, mm. and have Not never a made a film before, either. like if it, gets, <laughs> yeah. if it going gets tough, I'll be like, oh, fuck this. should we be planning all three movies at once, or should we start with one and just see how it goes? Oh, look, world building—that's all the rage right now, and it's the idea that you know you need to be thinking multi-platform. What is your story when it's as a feature film? Is your story also a comic? Is your story also a podcast? You know, this is the kind of stuff that we're asked by funding agencies, actually. So I would say. <laughs> Yes, plan all three, 
plan the merch, plan the game that you're going to sell with it. Oh, Go for it. Oh, yes. yes. Okay, all right. All right, okay. So Can't uh, they just do that for, like, me? We've already done it. <laughs> <laughs> Who is they? <laughs> I don't know. They seem to have some experience. Like, they know what they're looking for. Just, like, just let us see the one they approved from the previous one and we'll have a look at that first. All right, uh, Megan, thank you so much. Um, the one final question I want to ask, you've now optioned this Robin Klein book mm. for a film. Does that mean in the future we may see you creating a film of this and you have like a window where you can create this and no one else can. Is that right? Is that how yeah, it works? so what you do, it's kind of like leasing, leasing to, renting to buy kind of thing. So an option is like a lease and so you've got that lease for a couple of years and within that couple of years, if you can find the money to make your film, you then um, exercise your right to buy it. So at the moment, it's not a huge amount of money. I'm leasing it for a little while or I'm trying to get some money. If I get that money, then I sign a new contract where I buy it and then it's mine to make into a film. And those are my rights forever if I decide to buy it. But Sick. yes, so hopefully in the next couple of years I get the money and then I can convert it. <laughs> yes, and, yes. And if you get a little bit more, maybe option charcuterie as well. Yeah, it's going to be a hit. We know project. it's going to be great. Yeah, and just... <laughs> There'll be you'll, you'll get an advanced draft. We'll, we'll have an advanced draft. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for joining us again on Spooker. Thanks, guys. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?